Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to explore sound and healing. With me is Dr. Eben Alexander, who is author of Proof of Heaven, The Map of Heaven, and co-author of Living in a Mindful Universe, co-authored with Karen Newell. Welcome, Eben. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you as as well. In your career uh, in the field of medicine, actually, as I recall, before you experienced your coma, you were already exploring the role of, of sound in medical practice. Well, I was, actually. It's... Um... My career as a neurosurgeon, I had worked uh, more than 15 years at Harvard Medical School, was very interested in uh, kind of innovating ways to uh, give more uh, powerful healing techniques, but with less side effects, less Mm -hmm. damage. Um, Of course, in neurosurgery, we have a long history of doing kind of major things to get into the body and try and fix it. Uh, A lot of my work early on involved what's called stereotactic radiosurgery, designing systems to get radiation energy very precisely into the body Mm -hmm. so that we wouldn't necessarily have to... Uh, you know, cut our way in as we yeah. do in our surgery. And then a lot of the more recent, recent work, um, uh, in fact, the work I was doing when I fell ill, when I went into coma in 2008, I was working for the Focused Ultrasound Surgery Foundation based in mm-hmm. Charlottesville uh, on a technology that I still think will revolutionize medicine in a lot of ways. Uh, it's called Focused Ultrasound Surgery. It basically uses the... Um, mechanical and thermal effects of ultrasound energy to get therapeutic benefit. Most people are used to the concept of ultrasound for imaging, that is for Mm -hmm. diagnostic purposes. But in fact, when you use it for therapeutic effect, use MRI scan to actually guide the the beam because you can actually see the temperature changes Mm -hmm. on MRI. Uh, and a lot of the work that I was doing right around the time I went into coma, and then within three months of coming out of coma, I was back at work full-time for the mm-hmm. foundation. So I was very excited about that work, and it's interesting to me, kind of a synchronicity, that so much of my work today also involves sound, mm-hmm. but quite different from the focused ultrasound I was developing for medical uses before my coma. The idea back then is basically that it's it's a non-invasive way of performing surgery. Right. Exactly. You can mm-hmm. use the mechanical and thermal effects of ultrasound energy in the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, no cancer cell can outlive it. Uh, you know, a, a few seconds at 60 degrees Celsius and all tumor cells are dead. The only reason that doesn't mean the end of all cancer is that you also have to come up with ways to get that ultrasound energy around bone. So, mm-hmm. for example, doing it in the head inside the skull was a tremendous challenge, mm-hmm. although two companies one in Israel, one in France, and now there are other companies too, but they develop techniques to do that. And also, if there are any kind of air pockets, like the lung Mm -hmm. uh, is potentially a problem, or any gas in the GI tract, things like that, uh, because you ideally just want a a pure fluid interface for the ultrasound energy to work in. Mm -hmm. Whenever you have bone or you have some gas, 
uh, in the way it alters what happens, mm -hmm. makes it more challenging. I use uh, ultrasound to brush my teeth every morning. Well, uh, most people who go to the dentist are also used to that concept. A lot yeah. of the dental cleaning these days uh, is done with ultrasound energy. Uh, but it's amazing to me how far the world has come in terms of using ultrasound for medical purposes, but even more amazing where sound can take us in terms of exploration of consciousness. Yeah. And that's where I've been putting a lot of my focus over the last eight years is into that research. Mm -hmm. So just uh, for clarity of definition, uh, how do you define ultrasound? Ultrasound, uh, really the human ear mm -hmm. can hear sounds between 20 cycles per second, 20 hertz, and 20,000 hertz, mm -hmm. more or less. As you get older, you lose a lot, lot of that high-frequency hearing. Uh, but in general, that's our hearing range. So anything above 20,000 cycles per second uh, is generally labeled as ultrasound. Mm. And sound up in those ranges, even though we can't hear it, doesn't mean it can't be extremely effective at getting some things done. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, 20 hertz is about the lowest frequency the human ear can hear. But interestingly, a tremendous amount of the work that I've done uh, with my life partner, Karen Newell, and sacred acoustics in using sound to get into deep transcendental states of conscious awareness uh, depends not on carrier frequencies in that range, but we're actually uh, kind of uh, manipulating the brainstem to give us a sensation mm -hmm. of lower frequencies mm -hmm. that actually comes from the overlap yes. of the two frequencies. It, it turns out that that... Uh, physics uh, was something discovered by a Prussian physicist in the mid-1800s. His name was Heinrich Wilhelm Dove, uh, and he discovered what are called binaural beats. Mm -hmm. And the kind of general definition uh, is that if you put a pure tone signal into one ear, for example, 100 hertz or a 200 hertz signal into this ear, yep. and then if I put a slightly different frequency, say 104 hertz mm -hmm. or 204 hertz yep. into this ear, both those combinations, 100, 104, 200, 204, would give us the same 4 hertz difference between mm -hmm. them. And that is generated, we believe, down in the lower brainstem at the top of the medulla uh, in a uh, region called the superior olivary complex. It mm -hmm. turn, that's the same circuit that your brain actually uses. If I hear a sound behind my head, mm -hmm. sound traveling at 1,000 feet per second hits my eardrums at slightly different times. And that very same timing circuit uh, in the lower brainstem mm -hmm. is what generates that wavering sensation. That, that you would hear. be uh, part of what is called the reptilian brain, I presume. Well, I guess that would be uh, kind of that's not necessarily what we call it in medical school, but yes, mm -hmm. it, it is. Uh, it's part of the brain that evolved long ago, yeah. uh, and I believe that's why it is so powerful at engendering uh, deep transcendental states of conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. For example, um, you know, we often think of sound, vibration, mm -hmm. frequency, music uh, as being uh, something that can uh, help people get into transcendental states of conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. It's been used in religious and spiritual ceremonies going back thousands of years. Yeah. Um, uh, but most of that sound is actually something that is processed in the brain in the very recently evolved acoustic cortex, the mm -hmm. neocortex in the temporal lobes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where most of our appreciation of sound and, and kind of interpretation of sound and our memories of sound phenomena like loving a symphony or something like that. 
uh, comes from uh, that neocortical region, which is all, the neocortex is a very new structure. It came into primates, especially Homo sapiens, but also in primates. Um, also available in a lot of higher mammals, although with a very different structure to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we're actually talking about here in this uh, 20 hertz and below with the binaural beats discovered by uh, uh, Heinrich Dove uh, are frequencies that are, are much lower. Even though the ear is using a carrier frequency mm -hmm. 20 hertz and above, um, it's that uh, differential between mm -hmm. the two sound frequencies, it gives us that wavering sensation in the brain. And that's when we can get those low frequencies, yeah. like 1 hertz, 2 hertz, 4 hertz, by using those as the differences between the two ears. And in fact, if you listen to something like sacred acoustics, uh, you will find that there are there are many different layers of these sounds all going on at the yeah. same time. And they're all doing kind of different things, but all of it in harmony uh, is helping to free up your conscious awareness. Yeah. And I believe that uh, because we're actually manipulating a circuit that didn't evolve, you know, two or three or four million years ago in, in higher primates, but actually has its origins, as you point out, in the reptilian brain, uh, because that circuit and the reticular mm -hmm. activating circuit that's generally viewed by neuroscientists as being an ignition system that mm -hmm. basically fires a now signal 40 times yeah. per second to try and unite and bind consciousness into one experience. Uh, that originates down in that lower brainstem, too. And those circuits are ancient. Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, came on the scene probably around 300 to 310 million years ago. So extremely primitive circuits. I mean, one general principle in evolution of any kind of um, system, like visual systems or auditory or uh, consciousness, what have you, is the farther you can go back in the evolutionary tree in trying to um, parcel out uh, the functions of that system, the better. And, mm -hmm. and that's why I believe going back 300 million years in evolutionary neurobiology to where sacred acoustics and that differential sound frequency has such a primitive effect on archaic structures in the brain, mm -hmm. from my point of view, is why we seem to get uh, such astonishing examples of liberation from conscious mm -hmm. awareness in a lot of the people who use sacred acoustics, people mm -hmm. in our workshops, a lot of Karen Newell's customers that keep in touch with her um, by email, things like that, um, are showing some really profound effects of, of these uh, these tones. Now, my understanding is that the, the the tone that you hear, the tone between the tones, is produced because the nervous system itself, in, in a sense, performs a Fourier analysis on the sounds and turns the sound between the sounds into a frequency that you can hear in your inner sensorium. But if you had oscilloscopes in the room, uh, it wouldn't show up. It's not a sound that appears that in, is correct. in now, physical space. It turns out that what we often recommend is yeah. that people listen to these tones through headphones. Mm -hmm. Now, if you listen through headphones or earbuds, but headphones are a little better, uh, you truly are isolating the two channels. Mm -hmm. And so that wavering that you hear, the wah, 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 that kind of yeah. uh, sensation that you get in the auditory signal never exists in physical space. You're exactly right. If you had an oscilloscope and we're looking for that in the uh, interference patterns of sound waves in the room, you would mm -hmm. never find it. And that's where it has the greatest power is when mm -hmm. it's isolated to the two ears. However... 
Uh, Kevin Cossey, uh, uh, Karen Newell's business partner in Sacred Acoustics and the sound engineer, mm -hmm. has come up. Uh, the two of them have come up with a very, very clever way of actually getting the same effect um, even when we play it through speakers. Mm -hmm. And so what has happened is Karen and I then go around the world giving our meditation play shops over speakers to large audiences. Mm -hmm. And what you find there is that uh, even though you may lose a little bit of efficiency by not having headphones and getting the strongest possible signal in the lower brainstem, you more than make up for that by having the group energy. Because mm -hmm. a lot of what we experience in those kind of play shops is an example of kind of that oneness of mind and the unification of, of kind of heart consciousness and uh, uh, constructive interference of information uh, that uh, comes with the group meditative experience. I mean, the same kind of thing, I think, is accomplished uh, in group prayer, mm -hmm. uh, say, in, in religious groups yep. that pray together. Uh, there, there's a real power in kind of going within consciousness and developing a relationship with that one mind, that higher soul, uh, that God force. No matter what your religious belief and system, mm -hmm. when we do that kind of thing together, uh, it strengthens the overall signal that any of us get. So mm -hmm. uh, even through speakers, these can have effect. But generally, for people listening at home on their own, we highly recommend you listen to sacred acoustics through headphones. Well, if people were just meditating together in um, the meditation class or workshop, there is a group effect uh, I, I've experienced. And right. I think it's well known in spiritual traditions everywhere that right. when communities come together in uh, a sense of coherence, that right. uh, that does affect consciousness. Very much. But, now, but what is the additional effect that comes from the sound? Well, I think uh, what's happening there. Um, and again, this is, a lot of this is speculation, so I can't say, oh, we've proven all this. Yeah. But uh, a lot of our uh, the data and kind of the, the experience that uh, we have with people and what people report kind of aligns with the thinking that what we're doing is actually, uh, in a sense, uh, duplicating what happened to me in my meningitis, mm -hmm. okay, but without necessarily coming very close to death. Yeah. Uh, and what I mean by that is my, my meningitis had this uh, amazing effect of as it neutralized the information processing in my neocortex. And my doctors had beautiful evidence of that through both my neurologic exams uh, that showed very pathological uh, uh, reflexes in the brainstem. That's what mm -hmm. gave me those Glasgow coma scales down in the five, six, seven range was extreme damage to the neocortex, but also damage to my brainstem. Mm -hmm. um, and in the setting of that, I had this tremendously enhanced kind of ultra-reality, this experience I went through yeah. uh, that initially seemed way too real to be real. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, that a lot of the rest of the story is what eventually showed me the reality of that journey um, uh, that I describe in Proof of Heaven and especially in Living in a Mindful Universe. Um, but what we're trying to do is duplicate that. So in some sense, what I believe is happening here is by using these differential sound frequencies to kind of modulate the lower brainstem, the mm -hmm. medulla, the superior olivary complex. In essence, we're doing something similar to what someone does when they hypnotize you by slowly swinging uh, visual stimulus, yeah. like a watch mm -hmm. in front of you and your eyes following that. Or, for example, in EMDR, mm -hmm. you know, eye movement uh, 
desensitization and reprocessing uh, that's used to treat uh, PTSD, post-traumatic yes. stress disorder. Uh, similarly, there you are invoking a circuit in the midbrain, just mm-hmm. above the circuits we're talking about here, of a slow uh, left-right oscillation. And by doing that, I believe by any kind of slow left-right oscillation of neuronal activity in the lower brainstem, if it's properly applied, it has the impact of kind of monotonizing or driving uh, signal in the in the hemispheres and in the mm-hmm. thalamocortical loops, which modern neuroscience would postulate in a very rudimentary kind of version of how consciousness arises. All the details of conscious experience would occur in the calculator of the neocortex, but every bit of that is modulated by these self-referential loops that mm-hmm. extend from the neocortex down into the thalamus, which is a very powerful, mainly a sensory regulatory uh, system deep in the brain that goes you know, way back in uh, in evolutionary neurobiology, mm-hmm. not as far as the circuits we're talking about, mm-hmm. the reptilian brain, uh, but are part of uh, kind of vertebrates and and generally mm-hmm. also involved in in mammals, reptiles, yeah. amphibians. So a, a generalized system, but all of that modern neuroscience would postulate is bound together into this unification of consciousness through lower circuits that are sending these binding signals forty mm-hmm. times per second. And what I believe we're doing with uh, sacred acoustics and similar kind of sounds that uh, seem to have this effect in the lower brainstem, is basically uh, turning off the information processing in the neocortex in many ways. So we're getting rid of that calculator. I mean, Uh when I have the most profound effects from binaural beats of sacred acoustics are at times when I'm no longer hearing the tones at all. Uh I'm so deep and far gone into these uh, Mm -hmm. alternate levels of transcendental states of conscious awareness, I'm no longer in a here and now. Mm. Uh, And really, I've escaped... Uh, this kind of notion of self. Uh, uh, one of the things we help teach people in meditation is to acknowledge the little voice in the head, the linguistic brain, the voice of the ego, but is is little more than a parlor trick. Mm-hmm. That is not your conscious awareness. Yeah. That is not the deep mystery that materialist science is uh, hopelessly befuddled at trying to explain. Mm-hmm. The little voice in the head takes two little regions of brain, one degenerated Broca's area in the frontal lobe, dominant mm-hmm. hemisphere, neither one any bigger than that. Uh, and then Wernicke's area, similar size, back yeah. in, in the temporal lobe, mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really where we put together so much of our linguistic version of the world. You know, mm-hmm. as, as Descartes said, to define is to limit. And our very language conspires to give us, you know, self, non-self, uh, all yeah. of these kind of objects and relationships. Uh, for example, I love Jill Bolte-Taylor's uh, description in her book, My Stroke of Insight. Or in her TED Talk, she gives a beautiful story of what happens when you take that linguistic brain, specifically Wernicke's area, just the sensory you know, language center where we put all this stuff together in our mind about how it all works, mm-hmm. and our language is a huge part of that. But she had a vascular malformation right in that area, and it bled and damaged just that tiny part of her brain. But that was enough to completely detach her from a sense of self. In fact, the way she describes it as this hemorrhage destroyed her language center, her sense of oneness. She was sitting in a chair. She became one with the chair, the rug, the desk, the tree outside, one with everything. Mm -hmm. And as it was completely devastated, 
there was this beautiful sense of loving oneness that oh. encapsulated every bit of it. Mm. So just by getting her linguistic brain out of the way, her consciousness began to assume this role of consolidating and being responsible for all that she was aware of. And of course, in my circumstance, I had more than just Wernicke's area go away. I had all of my neocortex go away. Mm -hmm. And that's what I believe we are duplicating in a small fashion by using sacred acoustics kind of tones. And certainly the reports we get back from Mm -hmm. people about their journeys, about their kind of liberation from here now sense of self, uh, a lot of the uh, kind of expansion of higher consciousness they've been able to obtain fits with that kind of model of what we're doing. Well, uh, so you're saying that the um, sounds actually turn off different parts of the brain. Well, that's something that we're still in the process of trying to demonstrate uh, through spectral EEG and and other Mm -hmm. uh, techniques. And that work is uh, coming along. We we have several uh, studies that we're doing to try and refine the role of of this kind of differential frequency sound. For example, we're working with a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. in New York City on a pilot study looking at anxiety, depression, insomnia, and uh, lack of focus, and uh-huh. the ability to alter those things and improve them in people using sacred acoustics. It's tone. A, a working hypothesis. It's a working hypothesis, and uh-huh. we have a number of, of cases in various settings where people who were suicidal uh, apparently uh, just the exposure to the sacred acoustics tones was enough to. Uh, uh, forever take them away from any kind of suicidal ideation. We're also working with um, with a hospice and palliative care uh, research center mm-hmm. in North Carolina, uh, uh, trying to develop a pilot project with them to use sacred acoustic sounds uh, in an effort to enhance episodes of terminal lucidity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, that kind of reawakening of demented patients as yep. they approach death. And we've heard some anecdotal evidence that uh, sacred acoustics seems to have uh, some such effects. And so that's what we're, we're looking to enhance and also to help calm uh, people. Uh, for example, a major problem uh, in elderly demented patients is a circumstance called t- terminal delusions. Mm. And it's well known that uh, medicative, you know, pharmacologic solutions don't seem to work very well for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet uh, there's some anecdotal reports uh, showing that uh, sacred acoustics tones can be very relaxing, uh, grounding, uh, kind of enlightening and stabilizing for minds that are in that much mm. kind of Turmoil as they mm-hmm. approach uh, approach that threshold. So we have several scientific studies that we're doing. We do use uh, some forms of spectral EEG, uh, trying to analyze exactly what's going on. But the big reality here is is uh, you know the proof is in the pudding. Mm-hmm. In other words. Uh, we don't want to get sidetracked by looking for things in the brain that are only proxies for what we're really looking for, which are the phenomenal effects, uh, you know, the stabilization of mood, the kind of an, mm-hmm. uh, enlightenment guidance, uh, mm-hmm. enhancement of an immune response, other things that have been shown to occur from mm-hmm. uh, meditation, uh, creativity, uh, mm-hmm. in greatly enhanced creativity. We're trying to really look at those yeah. effects and measure those effects as opposed to looking for something like a spectral EEG, although... Looking at the brain and functional MRI, magnetoencephalography, spectral EEG, all those things are important, but of course they all take a lot of research dollars. And unfortunately, the research dollars for this are kind of short, uh, in short order. So uh, we're also looking uh, to enhance funding for various uh, Mm -hmm. scientific groups that we support who are doing this kind of work. 
Well, I had a cousin, distant cousin named D. Scott Rogo, who uh, died in 1990, but he wrote 20 books before he died in the field of parapsychology. And the first two books that he wrote was a two-volume set called NAD, NOD, as subtitled The Music of the Spheres. And what these books were about, he was 21 years old when Mm -hmm. he wrote them, was uh, the sounds that people hear as they're having out-of-body experiences. Wow, I need to go back and read those books. Yeah. So his last name was... Rogo. Rogo, R-O-G-O. R-O-G-O. I'll be looking for those. It's uh, fascinating. Uh, I know other people have looked at the sounds, for example, the sounds that people experience in near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, there's a woman named Saskia Moore. She lives in London. At least she did six years ago. And... uh, she, if you Google Dead Symphony, Saskia Moore, uh, you can probably come up with her work. Uh, but she collected a library of various sounds, uh, kind of the kind of music that people could recall. And she would do it by playing them various forms of earthly music and then mm-hmm. uh, seeing what seemed the most similar. Uh, many people would agree, as would I, uh, that you really cannot even construct that kind of music in four-dimensional space-time. You cannot do it mm-hmm. with our physics limited in this reality. Mm-hmm. And it just points out that in those realms, uh, music vibration frequency, given that it's not coming in through the ears at all, uh, can be far more extraordinary mm-hmm. uh, and, and powerful in many ways than the music that we hear here. Because you had that experience. Yes, uh, very, that was a huge part of my journey. Mm-hmm. Sound, uh, you know, in, in as I tell in Proof of Heaven, sound was part of that initial melody, that perfect uh, uh, melody associated with a, a, a clear light that came slowly spinning and ushered me up as a portal from that earth where my view up into that brilliant mm-hmm. gateway valley. And then likewise, the angelic choirs, the mm-hmm. swooping orbs of light uh, in that uh, uh, gateway valley realm, that deeply spiritual realm, uh, uh, provided yet another portal to higher and higher levels all the way out to the core, was fueled by music, vibration, frequency. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in the core, uh, the way I remember that deity, that alm force, that pure God force of infinite healing love, uh, when I came back to this world, for me, the word God was a puny little human word with a lot of baggage. Yeah. And so I called that force alm. It was very much a God of pure love and oneness mm-hmm. uh, that would certainly be a major part of, say, original Christianity, uh, a deep part of Buddhism, of compassion. Well, uh, even, it, it but, suggests when you call it om that it's a vibration. Well, it was. To me, it, the reason I, I, I defaulted to that name mm-hmm. for labeling that deity is, for one thing, it had no baggage at all. It didn't yeah. mean anything to me or anybody else, except that sound mm-hmm. had a profound association. And when people would ask me about that, that was the sound that was there in the core realm. Yeah. All the time. And and to any music theorist who queried me on that, I'd say, well, uh, it was the, generally the kind of resonance you might expect in a cavity of infinite dimensions in all of eternity. It was that rich mm-hmm. alm sound, and it was there every time I went back to that core realm. Yeah. And so that's what I could call that. And of course, when I came back to this world, I realized that that deity was kind of the central focus of any meditative tradition, mm-hmm. uh, acknowledging that it's the religious orthodoxies that get us so confused, but that at the deepest meditative traditions, as I would often hear from practitioners of those other religious faiths after they would hear me mm-hmm 
talk about my proof of heaven experience, is they would all tell me that it reminded them of the deepest ancient traditions of their own belief systems. Mm. So in other words, we get misled by the superficial orthodoxies that in many ways have been uh, hijacked by human beings in their writing, mm -hmm. you know, trying to lay down the rules of a religion, yeah. you know, beyond the original teachings of the prophets. Whereas, uh, in fact, the uh, original teachings in many ways are really just of oneness, of identity, of love and compassion and mercy for all fellow beings, that we're all in this together. So in many ways, religious orthodoxies have read us, led us away from those deeper truths, which I think is such an important part of this awakening and of meditation mm -hmm. for the individual to go there, because truly the answers lie within us all, all truly becoming whole, mm -hmm. uh, becoming the, the uh, sentient being and uh, understanding consciousness that we came here to be mm -hmm. is something we can achieve by going within, by uh, developing a much richer relationship with that awareness, mm -hmm. with that inner observer. And when we find out it's not really inner at all, it's uh, uh, the part of the universe that creates all of this evolving universe. That's what we're getting in touch with. Mm -hmm. And that's why this kind of meditation, I believe, is so absolutely crucial. There's really no such thing as true mental, physical, or emotional health unless we have spiritual health. And when I use the word spiritual there, of course, many people achieve that through religion, through prayer, mm -hmm. uh, a sense of oneness and of love and compassion for all fellow life. Um, but some people don't. And as I said, the religious orthodoxies and sometimes lead us away from that oneness and love. And that's why meditation is so important, going within. Yeah. I would say it's uh, ultimately uh, our mode of becoming more one with that higher consciousness, with that creative force of the universe, with uh, kind of reconnecting with the yeah. universe and, and understanding the hardships and difficulties in yeah. life, hard, uh, illness and injury, uh, coming to... Uh, basically rise above them by, in many ways, harvesting the lessons that they are there to provide with us. Now, so, you, you referred to that deity as Om, which is also, as I understand it, a Sanskrit syllable. And I believe in the Sanskrit tradition, there is a sense that there are various syllables and they each have particular effects on human consciousness. Well, my Sanskrit is a bit rusty, so I can't. I, I've heard a, a similar story. I do not claim to be mm -hmm. uh, knowledgeable about that. In fact, when I first came back from my coma, uh, labeling that deity Alm was very convenient because yeah. for me it had no prior association you whatsoever. I had the, no idea the Om chant, right, uh, mm -hmm. of any of that, and yeah. it just made sense from a practical viewpoint. Of that mm -hmm. was kind of my anchoring line that that took me way back into those realms, and especially beginning two years after my coma, mm -hmm. uh, when I it became crystal clear to me that the only way to get a deeper understanding of consciousness was to explore my own consciousness, to go deep within and try and then learn some of those lessons mm -hmm. uh, from my NDE. And that has been very fertile ground yeah. indeed. Uh, we explain a lot of that in, in our third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, where I talk very specifically about how I use uh, sounds like sacred acoustics, that same kind of powerful differential sound frequency brain entrainment, for example, to connect with my father. Mm. Uh, those who've read Proof of Heaven will realize that for me, one of the deepest mysteries, especially as I started reading NDE accounts after my own account, 
was the fact that my guardian angel on my journey, who I encountered over and over again, every time I passed back up through those levels, because I would end up in that core realm, the sanctum sanctorum of the divine, and then without any cause, seemed to tumble right back down to that earthworm eye view. Mm -hmm. But it was by conjuring up the musical notes of that melody that I could bring that spinning white light to serve as a portal, and I could uh -huh. re-enter those realms again and again. And every time I went through that beautiful girl on the butterfly wing. And to me, uh, when I wrote it all up in the weeks after my coma, because I, I was sure all of this would disappear. I yeah. didn't know at that time that NDE memories are very resilient. Usually mm -hmm. they'll be with you until you next die. So. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about keeping them in mind, but I thought it would all disappear. Uh, I thought, based on my doctor's testimonies, that it was a vast hallucination. It, no, it's as if your near-death experience opened up a, a doorway in your soul and it stayed open. It did. It did completely. And of course, uh, I've learned enough since then to realize that uh, even before I was born, this was something that I had in mind. My higher soul had planned this trip. I mean, people would often ask me, uh, early on in my recovery when I gave talks about about this, I'd say, so this infinitely loving God gave you this gram-negative bacterial meningitis and almost killed you? I'd say, no, I volunteered. I mean, we, we all do. Uh, it, it's hard to believe when you're in the midst of it, but yeah. the, the illness, the, the injury, um, much of it in many ways is how we set the stage to enhance our growth. Mm -hmm. And it's really through hardship. You know, as Nietzsche said, that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Uh, well, that's very true in many ways. And it's certainly true uh, in the NDE community. That which doesn't kill us makes us much stronger. But it's having to, we then have to do the work to understand the connections and understand what the lessons are that come out of those hardships. Well, it seems as if if, if we take into account the data of reincarnation that even if it does kill us, it could make us stronger. Well, I would say that's true. But remember, of course, that life review, do not forget, uh -huh. you'll be going through that. It's, uh, uh, you know, it depends on the series, but it's anywhere from 15 to 60% of NDE cases have life reviews as a very major component. Yep. And they're pretty universally described as you witness it as the uh, the, from the perspective of those around you affected by your actions and thoughts. And it's the big reason why I often say that the golden rule, you know, treat others as you would like to be treated, is written into the very fabric of the universe, is we're not avoiding that life review. And that is all in the process of, you're right, strengthening us, uh, making us stronger, but in many ways also teaching us that deep and beautiful lesson that I would say all of humanity has been charged with over the last you know, three to five thousand years, and that is about love and oneness of consciousness. And that is why this awakening is happening now. And we we really need to learn that lesson. Our uh, little beliefs that, you know, we can be separate beings because materialist science teaches us we can, we can be separate only leads to a lot of misery when we realize that greed, uh, you know, and possessiveness and handing out pain and suffering to others, ultimately we will feel the brunt of that. Well, there's another paradox involved in all of this. I think it's associated with time. Uh, of course, music is all has a time element that's, right. that's very important. But in the life review process, as it's been described to me, uh, you experience your entire life. Right and you experience every effect that you have had on every other person in, uh, in your life, positive and negative. Uh, but in external time, 
I mean, you were in a coma for a week. Uh, people say it could only take, from the external time, it might take a fraction of a second, but right. your experience is really that of a complete lifetime. Well, what I can tell you, I've, uh, not only did I see life reviews in grand splendor in my journey across vast civilization, so real, it's, to me it was almost like breathing. Uh -huh. You know, like we inhale, that's our uh, incarnation down here on this earth where we live through our lives and then we exhale, that's the time between lives, and we inhale again. So it was that regular a process, or another vision of it was like flying fish, and we come up out of the out of the water and we're in that beautiful etheric realm where we go through life reviews, plan our next incarnations, and then we all dive back in, temporarily dumped down. But you're right, time flow uh, in this realm is very much a fiction. This is part of the stage setting on which the drama unfolds. But um, in my journey, it was very clear that you also had to postulate a deep time. Mm -hmm. That was an ordering of causality of events in those spiritual realms that really kind of marks more the progression of ascendance of souls towards oneness with the divine. It's actually the evolution of consciousness itself and all of the kind of understanding of the lessons that we are here to learn in our growth. Uh, but essentially from having talked with hundreds and hundreds of people who have had life reviews in NDEs, and uh, many of whom had never read anything about an NDE before. Mm -hmm. All they knew was their own experience. What I can tell you is they very quickly will volunteer that it's a complete life review. It covers your whole life, every important fact that still there is a residual soul lesson for good or for bad, uh, and it happens like that. It can happen in, I mean, people who have a cardiac arrest or gone for just seconds then brought back can have a very profound NDE and they can see every bit of that. And it's, it's because time flow on this side of the realm is a fiction, not time flow over there. <laughs> over there, you have all the time in the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, in, fact, it, in fact, it's that kind of flow of deep time uh, that uh, you can become much more aware of in going into deep meditative states. I mean, you don't have to have an NDE to witness this phenomenon of deep time uh, and, and witnessing life reviews and that kind of thing as you develop a practice of meditation. Mm -hmm. it does, obviously, uh, you don't expect it in your second or third or fourth meditation, but if you do this daily and you do it uh, for a long period of time, and I can highly recommend that the eight years I've been meditating daily, not one minute of that has been wasted time. Mm -hmm. uh, they're of tremendous value in helping us to gain health, insight, uh, kind of guides and understanding of our lives, uh, creativity, every bit of that I think is a tremendous gift from going within. And that's why meditation, from my point of view, is an absolutely integral part of any program of healing. Mm -hmm. Well, we began our discussion by talking about the work you did prior to your coma, looking at sound as uh, a way of um, performing surgery without actually cutting into the body. And uh, we've we had a wide-ranging discussion, but let me ask you this. Do you, do you think that uh, the technologies that we're exploring with sound today uh, have that potential to uh, re-enter the medical practice? I think very much. I mean, mm -hmm. one thing to point out here, uh, you know, in this whole discussion of the mind, the brain, uh, you know, idealism versus materialism, etc., it's important to point out that the medical profession has been living for the last six or seven decades 
with a full-blown belief in the power of mind over matter mm -hmm. because placebo effect. Yep. Uh, some people think placebo is just, oh, if you believe you're taking something that'll make you better, you get better, and they dismiss yeah. it. Oh, it's just placebo effect. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, if you go to the uh, noetics.org website, and uh, they actually uh, have a book that was published in the, in the early uh, 1990s mm -hmm. and have continued with some of the work on spontaneous healing, yep. more than 3,500 cases where people's beliefs were able to lead to incredible healing. I mean, people can have um, cancers disappear and, and infections uh, through the power of, of of deep prayer, meditation, and their belief that they can get better. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that Big Pharma, you know, every single new medication they try and introduce in their multi-billion dollar industry must gain the support, uh, in, in most cases, of a placebo-controlled trial. Mm -hmm. It's because doctors realize just how profoundly a patient's belief that they might get better can lead to their getting better. The most uh, extreme examples mm -hmm. occur in near-death experiences, which I would say are kind of the ultimate in terms of spiritual power of healing. Yeah. Uh, for ex example, Anita Morjani, her book, Dying to Be Me. Mm -hmm. She had a stage four... Uh, uh, lymphoma that by any doctor's criteria reading her account, admission to an, a Hong Kong emergency room in February of 2006, she would have been dead within 12 hours. Mm -hmm. Well, she had a profound near-death experience in which she realized uh, that if she chose to come back to this world and realize that her very ha having the cancer in the first place was due to her fear of cancer, but that she also had the power to get rid of it. And she came back to this world, and literally within weeks, these lymph... Uh, lymph nodes the size of lemons around her body, filled with cancer, evaporated, went away. Or look at the story of Mary C. Neal, orthopedic surgeon who wrote uh, a book, um, uh, you know, To he Heaven and Back. Um, and in her book, uh, she tells this beautiful story of how she was an orthopedic surgeon on vacation in southern Chile, uh, had a kayaking accident where her, her kayak got jammed into rocks underwater. And um, she was underwater with broken legs pinned in that kayak for more than 30 minutes. Whoa. You don't come back from that. Yeah. And yet I was, uh, this weekend, I was with her uh, at the IONS meeting up in Washington State delivering uh, uh, talks. She had a beautiful healing from it all. My case, mm -hmm. uh, uh, severe bacterial meningitis, 2% uh, chance of living through it, no chance of recovery at all. And yet within eight weeks, I had fully recovered, including more than complete recovery of my memories. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson has recently completed a, a case report of my medical records that fully supports that I was in deep coma due to meningitis, uh, you know, full thickness uh, destruction of the neocortex that should have gotten rid of all but the most rudimentary of conscious experiences and certainly entailed a very high probability of dying and very little probability of any kind of recovery. And yet I recovered. Uh, so the medical profession takes my case very, very seriously uh, because of what it reveals about the the uh, the fundamental nature of consciousness independent of the brain. And that is the revolution that's coming 
coming to this world today. This kind of healing, I believe, is within our reach through such meditation, because meditation gives us that much broader connection with that primordial mind, with that higher soul, with the same kind of agency that we have between lives and planning next incarnations. And gaining a relationship with that uh, enables us to much more readily understand why we would have any kind of illness or injury in the first place, and then opens us to the kind of healing that can come from that kind of causative force in the universe, mm-hmm. uh, so that I believe that the way doctors will look at healing, say, 50 years from now, will be radically different from the kind of materialist science and molecular medicine taught in medical schools today, because it will come to totally honor the power of mind over matter that we already readily accept Mm -hmm. through placebo studies. And placebo is not just helpful to getting rid of a headache or some little pain. Uh, Recent uh, placebo studies have shown, uh, compared, for example, knee replacements, Mm -hmm. doing a sham procedure, but not the actual knee replacement, but then finding that the patient undergoing the sham procedure ends up having the same benefit uh, as if they have the full replacement. Likewise, in there was a study recently done in, in England uh, looking at uh, uh, angina, at uh, chest pain from uh, coronary artery disease mm-hmm. and, and uh, arterial insufficiency yep. to the heart. And you couldn't even do this study in the United States. The malpractice attorneys would cripple it to death in a heartbeat. Uh, But luckily, the patients in England were smart enough to realize that volunteering for this study would help other patients um, to avoid a needless procedure. And they ended up proving that doing a sham procedure was as good as doing the stent procedure where they actually open the coronary. So a patient's belief can have tremendous power. And when we fully open uh, that veiling mechanism, Mm -hmm. the brain is a filter, fully open ourselves to that creative force of of that that God force at the core of all of existence and all awareness, uh, I believe it's going to absolutely revolutionize Mm -hmm. the healing arts. Now, in in your particular case, as I recall, uh, your neocortex was virtually destroyed. And uh, I believe... We're talking about six layers of neurons. Right. And that has apparently uh, been replaced. You got, what, new neurons? Well, you know, that part, uh, I'm not sure exactly how to explain it all. Uh, based on my neurologic exams, it was very clear mm-hmm. uh, that I was on a, on a bad downward course. I mean, yeah. you couldn't have painted a worse picture uh, in terms of my neurologic exams showing all this damage to the neocortex, um, in terms of the laboratory values, you know, a cerebrospinal fluid glucose level of one mm-hmm. when the normal is 60 to 80 and in a severe case of meningitis might dip to 20. No, none of my doctors or consultants had ever seen a, a, a CSF glucose of one. Yeah. And to spend seven days in that coma uh, I mean, any doctor who cares for such a patient realizes that when they come in three hours a journey into coma and they've been in coma for a day or so, then you're either going to see that they're starting to wake up or they're dead. Mm. Uh, I was in that very strange betwixt and between state where I was still there. And they had MRI and CT scans that showed that the damage to my neocortex was really uh, pretty diffuse. Uh, I mean, all eight lobes of my brain were affected, some worse than others. But uh, there's something called the gray-white junction, which is apparent, especially on, on MRI scans, 
somewhat on CT, that's at the very deepest of those six uh, layers of the neocortex, and it blurs when it gets very inflamed. And mine was blurred throughout. Mm. Uh, and, and so plenty of evidence of destruction. The other important thing to point out is when I came back to this world, having just had this extraordinary experience that's still very sharp in my memory, I had no memory of anything else. Mm-hmm. So certainly my mental experience on returning this world matched perfectly somebody who had extreme destruction of their neocortex. The surprise is how rapidly it came back. Yeah. I mean, literally words and language, which I had none of in the experience itself. And when I was first coming to and, and kind of fighting to get the mm-hmm. tube taken out, but words and language were already coming back at that point. Uh, even though I don't remember the words. But as I said in an earlier interview, I was sitting there. My family described me like this little Buddha sitting on the bed saying, all is well, all is well, (laughs) uh, as if I was just assuring them not to worry that everything was fine no matter what. Uh, I don't remember those words, but words were coming back. And um, also in an earlier interview, I shared those 36 hours of being in and out of a psychotic delusional nightmare, what Mm -hmm. we would Uh, broadly label in medicine an ICU psychosis. Mm -hmm. But even in the midst of that, as crazy as it was, I knew that it was not real. I knew that it was a delusion. Um, But that's totally different from what I experienced deep in coma with that extraordinary spiritual journey. All those memories are as sharp as if if it all happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was some process whereby my brain recovered its mental function, but it was absolutely wrecked at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I believe that similar to... uh, Mary Neal, you know, you can't explain somebody being underwater. It was not a cold water drowning at all. She was under for 30 minutes. You ask any doctor who's taking care of drowning victims, they'll tell you it cannot happen. Or Anita Morjani in her case of the lymphoma. Lymphoma. Similarly for me, when you review my medical records in this case report, will be in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases in September of 2018 for anyone who wants to look it up. Mm Uh, But it makes an extraordinary picture of how I was doomed. Uh, And yet my brain recovered from it all in ways Mm -hmm. that go far beyond any kind of healing that Western medicine can currently explain. Mm -hmm. But this is all a process of unveiling the workings of the natural world. It does it a disservice to say this is all about the supernatural. When you realize that consciousness is very much much part of the natural world. And that's all we're trying to do is um, uncover the rules by which the natural world works. But the natural world fully includes the afterlife, reincarnation, and the power of mind over matter to heal even extraordinary illness. But we need to open our beliefs and our abilities to those possibilities based on the empirical evidence and then use meditation, and going within and developing a regular practice of that to gain the kind of skills that can actually give us those very lofty results. Dr. Eben Alexander, once again, a very enlightening discussion. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy being here again. It's it's been my pleasure, and I hope you come back uh, again. We could do hope, we could do this for a thousand years. <laughs> I would love to anytime. We'll try and get back out here and, and talk some more. That would be great, and thank you for being with us.
The New Thinking Aloud, or In Presence podcast, that you have just heard was originally recorded as a video for the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube. Check out the channel by going to newthinkingalloued.com.